Uh, well, many of us are already very familiar with the story of Cain and Abel. Some of us perhaps have known the story all our lives, or at least all that we can remember. Um, the question, uh, am I my brother's keeper, has uh, taken up a life of its own outside of the Bible, outside of the church, and it's uh, been referenced to uh, in, in the title of dozens of books, memoirs, comic books, as well as plays, films, television series, episodes, uh, um, album titles. Um, am I my brother's keeper? Just in case you're wondering, the answer is no. I, I am not my brother's keeper, but I am my brother's brother. Well, there are some confusing things, to be sure, in the story of Cain and Abel. But for today, I'd like to begin this sermon by thinking about the sacrifices of Cain and Abel and why one was acceptable and the other was rejected. Perhaps the first thing to note is that there is nothing inherently wrong, at face value, with what Cain did. Sacrificing to God a grain offering, some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord God Almighty. Grain offerings indeed become an important part of the prescribed temple worship later on in the Bible. And the flow of the narrative suggests that offering the Lord a sacrifice was indeed Cain's idea, not Abel's. We hear about him making his offering first, then Abel. I think we are right in assuming that Abel, the younger brother, is doing what younger brothers always do, which is copying their older brother. But the Lord makes a distinction between the two brothers. Genesis 4.4, the Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. And I think we are being told something about, uh, firstly, the nature of each offering, secondly, the nature of each offerer, and thirdly, the nature of God. So firstly, the nature of each offering. Abel brought to God an offering that was the first and best of what he had. It's clearly an act of worship performed in humility, offering to God the very best and the very first of what he had in order to show that he thought God was worthy of the very highest possible honor. It is a thank you present as well as a public demonstration of trusting faith. For he must trust that soon more will come along. It is not only the best, but it's the first. His preparedness to go hungry for a time shows us he knows more is on the way by the grace of God, a faithful, promise-keeping God. Cain, on the other hand, offered some of the fruits of the soil. This isn't a first fruits offering, otherwise it would be described like that. It is, I think we can safely assume, some of the surplus, uh, something of the excess, uh, something that Cain felt he could afford to give away. A token, in other words. And nothing wrong with that per se. Sometimes tokens are good. 
later on in this service at the communion table, we will share tokens of what lays in store for us. Um, sometimes tokens are appropriate, but we must guard ourselves against tokenism. And that brings us to the nature of the offerer. Cain was very angry and his face was downcast, we are told. Cain, presumably, knows that his offering has not been accepted because it has not brought about that increase in wealth, that increase in crop yield, in income, that he'd anticipated. We, we, we now understand that Cain had given to God in expectation that he would receive a blessing. And when that blessing failed to materialize, he was angry with God for not keeping to his side of the bargain, to the deal that he imagined he had with God. He was angry with God and he was angry with his brother, who was now seen as direct competition for the blessing of God, angry with him enough to kill him. And lastly, the nature of God from this sacrifice. Well, what do we find out about God? Well, we find out that he can see straight through us. God sees and judges the heart. He, he sees and judges our thoughts and motives at the deepest possible level, sometimes the motives indeed that we ourselves are hardly aware of or indeed have um, worked to suppress. Rather than a real act of worship, as it could have been, God saw that Cain's offering was sham worship. Cain was simply trying to do what all human beings, all but all save one, have always tried to do. That is, to manipulate the spiritual powers that be into bettering our own welfare. And the, the Bible has a word for that. It's... Uh, called idolatry. But with respect to Abel, the Lord sees this as a genuine and sincere sacrifice, an expression of gratitude and humility, an act of worship, as well as a step of faith and trust. The, the very next sacrifice that we hear about in the book of Genesis is equally informative. Coming out of the ark after the flood... Noah, uh, Genesis chapter 8, Noah built an altar to the Lord and, taking some of all the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. And as with Abel's sacrifice, Noah offers a burnt offering, something totally consumed by fire, something burnt up in its entirety. And as with Abel's sacrifice, Noah's sacrifice is pleasing to the Lord. The Lord was pleased with it. However, this time we get more information. The Lord likes the pleasing aroma. And as we move forward in Scripture, and especially as we encounter the various forms of sacrifice prescribed for Israel in the book of Leviticus, we'll encounter again and again this phrase, a pleasing aroma, attached to 
burnt offerings. Animals burnt up in their entirety as an act of worship. And that phrase might fill our minds with anthropomorphic questions. Why does God like the smell of burning meat so much? Does it make him hungry? What kind of nose does God have? Etc., etc. Well, we, we too, we too indeed, we, we enjoy particular smells, don't we? And we particularly enjoy smells that key into something deep and personal for us, perhaps a childhood memory. Smells can evoke, provoke very powerful emotions. Like the smell, something precious, the smell of arriving home on, on a cold Saturday afternoon to be greeted by the warm smell of a cake baking in the oven. Or maybe suddenly encountering the perfume that grandma used to wear. Or um, the smell of the flowers that mum puts out at Christmas time. Um, smells keying into something deep and personal and highly evocative. Well, what, what deep and personal thing is the smell of Noah's sacrifice keying into for God? What could it be? Well, as we move forward in Scripture, we don't have to go very far. We get to Genesis chapter 22 and we encounter the Lord telling Abraham to take his son, Isaac, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering. On a mountain I will show you. Your son, your only son, whom you love. Well, actually, we, we all know Isaac is not Abraham's only son. Ishmael was born first. And there'll be many others after Isaac too. And we know that Abraham is a particularly loving and doting father and that he loves dearly all of his sons. But in covenant terms... Isaac is Abraham's first and best, the one and only, the son, the, the only son of his beloved wife Sarah, and the only son of the promise. And you know the rest of the story. Abraham proved his willingness to obey, but in the end, the Lord provided a ram um, that, that died um, and was burnt up as Isaac's substitute. And perhaps we're getting close now to answering the question of why a burnt offering is a pleasing aroma to the Lord. We know as, as, as we read the story of Abraham and Isaac, we know actually that for us as Christians, we know, we know we're actually hearing about Jesus, that Jesus is our ram. Jesus is the lamb who takes away the sin of the world, figuratively a burnt offering, the one who was crucified, the, the, the one who was consumed, um, but crucified when? Well, Revelation 13 tells us the lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. Surely the burnt offering is pleasing to God because it is, it is an act of complete dedication, of total abandonment into the hands of God. Um, the thing burnt up completely, turned into smoke, ascending smoke, belonging to God completely and utterly, exclusively. 
um, this, this smell keys into something for God because it, it reminds him of the crucifixion of Jesus, which is actually something for us that happened in a particular time in a particular place, but for God is an eternal truth, something that happened in eternity. Love as sacrifice. Love as willingness to suffer detriment, to bear the cost, the total cost, for the sake of the welfare of the other. The father giving his first and best. The son giving everything for the world. And in these things, the first and best signifying the everything. For, for surely if the father has given us the son, how much more will he give us everything? The first and best signifying the everything. The burnt offering is a pleasing aroma because it resonates with something eternal in God, which is the cross. His preparedness to sacrifice himself totally for the welfare of his creatures. And as the Old Testament advances, the sacrifice system, the sacrificial system in a sense, splits into two. Solomon's sacrifices illustrate, I think, the principle I'm attempting to articulate, Solomon, upon being given by God the gift of wisdom, returns to Jerusalem, whereupon, 1 Kings 3, he stood before the ark of the Lord's covenant and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then he gave a feast for all of his court. The first part of Solomon's worship was a gift devoted exclusively to God, sacrifice made only to God, the burnt offerings. The second part of Solomon's sacrifice was sacrifice for the sake of others. Fellowship offerings made before the Lord but offered up in his court as a feast for others, a meal that fed large numbers of people. Both indisputably pleasing to God as pure acts of worship and devotion, but not identical acts of worship. The, the Noah, Abel, Abraham, Solomon, first and best offering, that first fruits tribute, remains special in a special way in the Old Testament, even as the fellowship offering, the sharing with others, the providing for others, that also remains special in its own way. With respect to the former, uh, it becomes known as the tithe, the first fruits, fruits offering, the first and the best, to be brought into the temple as an offering to the Lord, traditionally understood as the first 10%, the first 10% of all of the crops, the first 10% of everything. It's described in various places like uh, Leviticus chapter 27 and Deuteronomy 14 and 26, 10%. Um, that, that tradition, I think, comes to be summarized in Proverbs chapter 3, where it says, Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing, and your vats will brim over with new wine. And likewise, from the prophet uh, Malachi, the same promise within a correction a correction when the Israelites got it wrong. Malachi chapter 3, I, the Lord, do not change, so you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you've turned away from my decrees and you've not kept them. 
return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, the whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out such, so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it is ripe, says the Lord Almighty. Then all nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. Test me in this, says the Lord. In other words, provoke me into action by way of your obedience. Tithing, offering to God the first and the best in proxy for the everything. An action that the Lord is prescribing the Israelites something to do with their hands in order that their hearts might be changed, in order to keep their hearts able-like, in order to keep their hearts Christ-like, humble, grateful, adoring. And with these thoughts in mind, perhaps we can now ponder Paul's words to the church in Corinth. He was writing to the church in Corinth, actually about the churches of Macedonia. Now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. Uh, Paul is talking about a fundraising initiative, probably his own fundraising initiative. It might have been somebody else's, I'm not sure. But Paul is talking about a fundraising initiative that's very precious uh, to him personally, something that he has pioneered and championed. The idea of all of the churches of the Gentile world, the eastern end of the Mediterranean, putting a collection together to help the people of the church in Jerusalem who are uh, suffering greatly deprivation a struggling church because Judea has been hit by drought and famine. Um, and Paul continues, with respect to the Macedonian churches, they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord, and then, by the will of God, also to us. Paul uh, does not explain what that phrase first of all to the Lord, specifically refers to, and a variety of interpretations is possible. Nevertheless, it, it clearly shows that in some unspecified way, the Macedonian Christians gave to Paul's appeal to share with those in need, not instead of their usual giving, but afterwards, and in addition uh, to their usual form of giving. 
Furthermore, we can see that the Macedonian churches were observing some form of giving practice that honored the burnt offering, fellowship offering principle. They gave themselves first to the Lord. They gave, uh, uh, first of all, they gave the first and the best to, unto God, somehow exclusively, and then after that, they gave themselves to charitable giving. I, I take it that, that the Macedonian church, to the great joy and excitement of Paul, tithed first and then responded to the needs of others with great generosity by way of a distinct but secondary offering. Um, and but by now, you, you, you may have noticed that I'm preaching on tithing. And you may have, therefore, possibly reached the uncomfortable conclusion that at some point I'm going to ask you to give more money. Uh, in the face of that, I can offer you two reassurances. Firstly, for anyone who's alarmed, uh, you'll find under your seat a pair of noise-canceling headphones. <laughs> Should your stress and anxiety levels ri rise at any point. Um, my second reassurance is that, no, actually, I am not going to ask anybody to give more money. Uh, for indeed, awful things can and do happen when pastors use the theology of tithing as a means of manipulating congregations into giving more money. In essence, the pastor turns his flock into a congregation of canes, all trying to imitate Abel, all waiting for the blessing that God has in store for them, which is, after all, his end of the bargain. But there is a reason for this talk today. I feel this is something the Lord wants me to talk about today. Um, St. Barnabas is experiencing something of a mini-crisis at the moment. Our income is suddenly less than our expenditure by a, a significant and perhaps even alarming margin. You may have received a letter by email during the week about this from our treasurer. It, it is a mini-crisis, not a maxi one. Uh, we, 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 we do have some savings as a buffer. And asking around, I've discovered that this is, seems to be, in my experience, um, effectively a universal phenomenon, affecting all of the churches of which I've inquired. Uh, low attendance and low giving. The church everywhere seems to be experiencing something of a recession. And COVID is undoubtedly somewhere a, a factor. Nevertheless, I don't think we want to use that information to insulate ourselves from whatever the Lord might have to say to us specifically at this time. Likewise, it is a common enough mistake in times of deprivation or shortfall or austerity to imagine that more money is going to fix the problem of not enough money. But very, very, very rarely does the problem of not enough money get fixed by getting more money. For us as Christians, of course, we know that shortfall or lack of provision, well, that's time to stop, to seek the Lord's face and to examine our hearts. But returning to our topic, I think it's relevant and 
perhaps indeed appropriate to tell you that I personally, I, I tithe the first 10% of my income. And I always have since becoming a Christian. I was taught to tithe by those who dis discipled me at the beginning of my Christian walk, and I thank God heartily that that is so. Um, some years ago in Melbourne, um, a very, very wise and godly elderly uh, prayer warrior of a lady uh, said to me, Stephen, there are two types of Christians in this world. Those who never have enough money and those who tithe. Acknowledging that for what it is, proverbial wisdom rather than some kind of absolute statement of fact, I think she's basically right. In fact, I think she's hit the nail on the head. Offering the first and the best to God sanctifies the rest insofar as it is proxy for everything, insofar as hopefully it is, hopefully it is a spiritual practice that keeps my heart able-like, Christ-like. It is something that I do with my hands, hopefully, that reminds me that the first and best is proxy for everything, a life laid down in worship, all money, all time, all talents, everything at the Father's disposal. Certainly, tithing has taught me to know for sure that you cannot outgive God and that you can trust him to provide for all of your needs all of the time, even in times, paradoxically, of deprivation. And certainly, I have seen his miraculous provision of funds to me personally many, many times. Uh, twice going off to Bible college, for, one, for example, once overseas, another time interstate, both times with no savings, no money, and no assets, but God providing. I know that the Lord Jesus Christ is utterly sovereign over the laws of economics, and I know that he can milk the miserly saver out of every last penny whilst opening the world up to the one who on paper owns nothing at all. Tithing means, for me, giving the first 10% of my income to the Lord by way of an offering to the church that I attend. So then, in terms of my money use, first, I tithe. Second, expenses, day-to-day -day living, mortgage, food, clothing, bills, etc., etc. Third, responding to a needy world supporting by way of occasional donations or perhaps regular uh, giving, um, things like missionaries and mission organizations, humanitarian crisis and aid organizations, child sponsorship, and uh, the theological education of the next generation of church leaders. Plus, of course, obviously, environmental and conservation concerns, carbon offsetting, animal welfare, etc., etc., the multifaceted character concerns of our Lord Jesus Christ. And with respect to all of this, I give out of my surplus. And sometimes I give more than I can afford. And oftentimes, less. But please note that in my mind at least, I divide my income into three parts. The first, the second, and the third. The first part, the tithe. The second part, expenses and living. The third part, sharing with others charitable giving. The less I spend on that second part, the more I have for the third part. For me, 
just for me, it's important not to confuse tithing unto the Lord with charitable giving. For me, they're not the same thing at all. Both equally pure. Both equally pleasing to the Lord, but not identical. For me, personally, to confuse the first part, the tithe, with the third part, sharing with others and charitable giving, could lead me to other confusions. For example, it might lead me to the conclusion that God and his church are a charity. Just like World Vision and Compassion Australia are charities. But actually, God is not a charity. Nor is his church. And tithing is not charitable giving. A, a similar confusion that it could lead personally me to is that if I confuse the first portion with the third, is that it could lead me to the very, very dangerous conclusion that by giving 10% of my income away, I'm being generous. You know, I'm, I'm reading what Paul has to say about generosity. I'm thinking, oh, yeah, that's me. Whereas I'm not being generous. Never belonged to me in the first place. But that's not where generosity is to be found. So hopefully it keeps my heart humble so that in turn I might actually learn to be generous. Now, there might be some listening to me here today who know that I have grossly oversimplified what's in the Old Testament with respect to tithing. That's true. I have. Tithing in the Old Testament is complex, not simple. And even now, scholars debate the details, like whether it was 10% or, in fact, maybe even 23%. And they debate the details as to where it went and how it was spent. And there may be some here this morning who know, uh, as I do, that both the prophet Amos and the Lord Jesus Christ rebuked hard-hearted people who were selfish and self-indulgent and yet and nevertheless tithed. So as a spiritual discipline, it's not foolproof. And compassionate generosity is more important than tithing. And there may be some here this morning who know that we as Christians are nowhere commanded to tithe. Quite true. We are not under the law. You are free to tithe, and you're free not to tithe. Paul commanded Timothy to command those in his church who were rich. He commanded them uh, to command Timothy to be... Uh, uh, Paul commanded Timothy to command them to be generous and to be willing to share with others. Paul did not command Timothy to command those who were rich how to be generous or how to share with others. How, indeed, how is your business, not mine? Generosity is essential to the Christian life. Tithing isn't. And St. Barnabas is an incredibly generous church. The generosity I've witnessed over the years in this place is absolutely breathtaking. I've got so many stories to tell, and so do many of you. People giving money, time, gifts, skills, both to the community as a whole, as well as to individuals in need. Um, praise God. I praise God for putting me here amongst uh, and, and, and able to receive the example of such outstanding saints. But I guess... 
to, to, to share my thoughts openly, our current mini-crisis has opened my eyes to the way in which there is an historic and organic connection between Anglicanism and tithing. You see, the Church of England, wherever she goes, seeks to plant churches so that, by and large, the good folk of every village, town, and city are never more than walking distance away from their parish church. A pastor who, who, who knows you and you know them. A, a, a pastor who's, who's the inside of whose house you're familiar with and who's familiar with the inside of your house. And such a setup assumes and requires, requires tithing in order that something like nine households might support a tenth. In contrast, uh, if we might consider um, the megachurch, uh, a, a topic I seem unable to stay away from just at the moment, uh, if we consider uh, the megachurch with, uh, for example, uh, a congregation of, say, uh, 3,500 attendees per uh, weekend, um, and that's um, hypothetical, but it's modest compared to some, and a, a church where people use the newfangled invention of the motor car to arrive at that church from all over the metropolitan area, well, then actually... You only need people giving something like a visit to Hoyts in the Loo for that church to be making many millions of dollars per year. In fact, based on 3,500 attendees, something like $4.55 million a year by my back-of-the-envelope calculation. But you still only need to employ one preacher. The rest can be spent on whiz-bang ministries and teams and camps and programs of all sorts, along with glorious merch, which is a new word. I think it's the new word for stuff. Wonderfully cost-effective and powerfully attractive. So I guess what I'm waking up to is that I have wittingly or unwittingly, perhaps knowingly, I've actually bought into church in its most expensive, least cost-effective form, humanly speaking. And is that, is that a thing? Is, is that something worth preserving? Um, is it biblical? Well, well, now's a good time to find out and to think and to pray, to search our hearts and to seek the face of God. Therefore, this sermon on tithing is not about asking you to give more money. I don't also, likewise, I don't want to provoke in anybody feelings of either pride, which would need to be rebuked, or shame, which should be covered over with love. Jesus loves you, I love you, Jesus loves us. But perhaps our mini-crisis might be a stimulus to thought and prayer, to searching of hearts and seeking the Lord's face. Um, if, if you don't tithe, maybe you could perhaps prayerfully consider what I've said today as to whether such a practice might be spiritually good for you, just as I believe it is spiritually good for me. 
I'm always delighted to recommend and defend tithing as something spiritually good for you, for me, and for us. And if you, so, if you don't tithe, maybe you'd like to pray about it. If you do tithe, then, uh, if you do tithe like me, then let's pray that, that, that God will make us generous, because that's more important. And even more generous, just like Jesus. Ultimately, it's about staying like Abel, even in our copying of our older brother Cain, rather than copying Abel, but in our hearts, staying just like Cain. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, we need you. Lord, we love you. Lord, we need you, and we need your help. Lord, we are wretched, poor, pitiful, and blind. You alone can save us. You are the source of all light and wisdom and understanding. Lord Jesus, you are our light and the light of the world. We confess that we have wandered from your way. You alone, Lord Jesus, can save us. Wipe out our sins and help us to trust in you anew. In the face of a certain austerity, we trust you. And we look to you to satisfy our desires with good things, your way and in your timing. Teach us your paths of righteousness that we may walk in your truth. To the glory of the Father and in Jesus' name. Amen.